please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who, pray, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We're going to continue uh, in the book of 12, and as you know, we're going to be in Jonah. And I hope you find, have found these uh, prophet, minor prophets to be useful and applicable to our lives today. Most of these were written well over 2,000 years ago, and yet they have such a poignancy uh, in our lives uh, today. I, I know in preparing this sermon on Jonah, I was surprised at the depths of this book, right? It, it's more than a simple story about a man getting eaten by a whale, right? It's more than the VeggieTales movie, right? There's a lot more to see here, and God's been revealing that, and I hope we get to see that together today. I know most of us know the story of Jonah. It is the most known of the minor prophets, I would say, right? And most of us know it's about a, a man who gets eaten by a whale, right? I think most of the kids could even tell us that today. And if you're an advanced biblical scholar, you would say it's not a whale. It was a, it was a great fish, right? So it, it was a great fish. That's right. But there's a lot of things that we can learn from Jonah. And there's a lot of things that are these different strings and themes that run throughout Jonah. We see Jonah is a story about God's will versus man's will, about God's sovereignty and salvation. Jonah is a story about pride and sin and nationalism. My hope is what we take away today, though, is that it's a story about a great God who uses broken people to do beautiful things. Right? There is one key verse that I want us to hold on to as we go through this book today, and it's Denson already read it. It was in Jonah 2.9, that last phrase there, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right, that's a key verse uh, that we're going to touch on many times today. Before we get started, join me in prayer. God, I thank you for this time today. I thank you that you've preserved this story for us. I thank you that it has much to show us. I thank you for the work you've done in my heart as I prepared, and I pray that I'm able to convey your word well today, Lord, that your word to be effective that your word would cut where needed and be a soothing balm where needed. Lord, I pray that you soften our hearts, that you open our ears, that you remove the scales from our eyes. I pray that you would reveal our sin to us, 
And I pray that you would quickly show us your grace. Keep Christ preeminent on our hearts today. Lord, help us lean in and see what your word has. When I echo Mark's prayers and I pray for the churches right now who don't have a place to meet today, who are running around and trying to figure out how to hold a service, how to glorify you in the midst of chaos. In Southwest Florida, Lord, I know there's many that are closed today and we pray, oh Lord, that they, that they find resolution and that they find rest and they find peace. Lord, that you would send in the help or that help would flood in you would be glorified in the midst of a storm as we see in the text today. Lord, be with us this day. Amen. All right, so as we, as we jump into Jonah, there's a few things we want to look at first. First, this book reads quite a bit differently than most of the other minor prophets that we've seen. Most of the prophetic books are full of prophets saying prophetic things. They speak the word of the Lord for most of the book. That's not the case in Jonah. Jonah is a narrative story. It's a narrative story, and it's a biography story of Jonah. And most likely, it's an autobiography story, which means Jonah most likely wrote the book. In this narrative story, we're told more about the prophet than we're told about what the prophet has to say from God. In fact, the message that the whole message that is delivered from God is found in one verse. It's in chapter 3, verse 4. It says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? That, that's the prophetic message that's contained in this minor prophet's book. Eight simple words of warning. Eight simple words that Jonah almost died not to say. Right? Jonah did not want to say those words. There's a little bit of information of Jonah outside of the book of Jonah that gives us some insight about it. If we look back in 2 Kings 14, there's some insight. The text is a little uh, vague, but it's there. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lobohamoth as far as the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Garhefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heavens, had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So that's, that's a lot of names and it's a lot of stuff going on. But what's going on is Jonah is affirming the king in his, in his military uh, conquest. We see Amos and Hosea were talking to the same king and speaking out against uh, Jeroboam in his military conquest. They denounced him. Uh, Jonah would have been considered definitely pro-Jeroboam, pro-Israel, uh, a nationalist, if you will. And we have one more consideration before we start, and it's an important one before we study any book of Scripture. It's the question is, what is the literary style of the book, right? 
How you answer this question determines how you'll read the book. Did the events of Jonah literally, historically, actually happen? Did a real fish swallow a real man for three days and spit him up? Right? Everything we have says yes. Right? It's an historical story. There's no indication in this text itself that it's a parable. There's no indication from Christ later when he references it in Matthew that he thinks it's a parable, and he wrote it, so he would know. The account as a whole can be taken as a literal history. So with a little bit of background, we're going to dive in and look at chapter 1, verse 1. It's a familiar opening from the Minor Prophets. We've seen it before, we'll see it today, and we'll see it again. The word of the Lord came to Joel. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Micah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, right? That's how the prophets open. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. I think we forget to be in awestruck wonder about what that means. It's over a hundred times in the Old Testament that the word of the Lord came, right? And we can see it so much that we forget, like, wow. What a privilege that must have been for the prophet. What an amazing thing that the God of creation, the holy, holy, holy God that we just sang about, would bend down and speak to a man and through a man. Jonah was this privileged prophet, and he had, God spoke to him, and he had the ear of the king, right? He was in a privileged position. And in this instance, we see the Lord capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the Lord, gives Jonah a very simple, very direct command. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Right? Now, maybe we don't know much about Nineveh. I didn't before my study. So I'm gonna, it helps to have a little context. Nineveh was a great city. We see Jonah describe it as a three days walk across. It was home to 120,000 people. At one point, shortly after this, it became the largest city in the world for about 50 years. It's located near present-day Mosul in Iraq, which is about 600 miles away. It was a major city in the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire had the Assyrian military which was a scary thing. The Assyrian military was cruel beyond belief, certainly by beyond belief of today's standards, and it made ancient standards look pale in comparison. Uh, they had a policy of making statements when they conquered people. They wanted to send a message with what they did with the people they captured that you did not want to go to war with the Assyrians, and they made sure people understood that you did not want to go to war with the Assyrians. They were the first to have iron weapons when everybody else had bronze weapons. They had chariots when people didn't have chariots. So they had technology and they had cruelty, which was a bad combination. Most importantly to our story, they're also not friends of Israel. They were not allies of Israel. In fact, 50 or 60 years after this account of Jonah, the Assyrians end up taking over Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. 
So that's a little background on, on Nineveh. That's a little background on what has God asked Jonah to do. He's called out this privileged, experienced prophet who's heard the word of the Lord, and he says, nope, right? He runs in the opposite direction. He's in, he's in uh, Israel. God says, go to Iraq, go to Nineveh, right? And he says, nope. Right? And he takes off in the other direction. To, to paraphrase from uh, Man Overboard by Sinclair Ferguson, which is a book I, I leaned on for this, this uh, sermon, Jonah's objection was not intellectual, right? He clearly understood the ask. God was clear on what he wanted Jonah to do. It wasn't a lot to interpret. There wasn't a parable. There wasn't something difficult to understand. He just didn't want to do it. And it was his will and the Lord's will, and they clashed, right? Jonah later reveals to us more about the reasons he ran, and we'll see that later. We see he fled to the port. He's going to go find a boat and get out of town. And he's interested in going to Tarshish, which is on the southern coast of Spain. So it's about the exact opposite as you could get. Uh, he's getting out of town. Um, there's a story that Spurgeon told, and he said he described a school friend who had a violent temper, and he would often get very angry. And when his school friend would get very angry, he invariably would throw something. Spurgeon then said this, What struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he was angry, but that when he was angry, there was always something at hand to throw, right? Jonah's running. He's through the port. Oh, look, there's a ship going to Tarshish, right? Jonah was looking to run. It's funny, isn't it, that when we're looking to run from God, there always seems to be something convenient to help us along the way. We must be careful reading into convenient circumstances as God's blessings or signs. There's a lot there, but we've got to keep on moving. We see Jonah put his plan into action. He probably takes a sum of money and buys a ticket and heads west instead of east in hopes of leaving the presence of the Lord. And again, it seems there's a battle now between Jonah and the Lord, and this time it's physical. Almost immediately, we see a massive storm spring up. It's not hard to imagine a massive storm right now for any of us, right? We need only remember a couple days ago. They said Ian off the coast of Fort Myers produced over 24-foot waves, right? I'm not sure how bad the storm was, but it said it was a mighty tempest on the Mediterranean. It was bad enough that these experienced sailors were afraid. They were very afraid, and they were afraid their boat was going to break up. So these pagans begin to pray. They pray to any god they can think of. They're just praying, and they're afraid, and they're scared. And the captain goes down, and he looks for Jonah, and he finds him asleep, and he echoes the word of the Lord, and he says, arise, and come, come up top. And they've got a plan. They're going to throw some dice, and they're going to figure out who's at fault. Why is this tempest going on? Who's at fault for this? And so they, they throw dice, and it, and it lands on Jonah, right? Amazingly. Proverbs 16, tells us how that happened. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, right? It's a small reminder that in the middle of the storm, in the middle of Jonas running and his failings, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in control of everything that's happening on that boat. 
including when you throw those dice, who it lands on. Verse 8 and 9, let's look at that together. He says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Right? There's a lot of questions, and there's a lot of answers, but if you read closely, you can see he answers all of them but one. They ask, what is your occupation? Right? Jonah doesn't answer that question. He just skips it, because he knows. He's not, right now, he's not a prophet. He is not speaking the word of the Lord that the Lord had given to him. He knew he had failed. And then these pagans begin to do something that's quite courageous. They struggle to save Jonah. We'll see, Jonah has very little interest in saving himself, but these pagan sailors are, are rowing against the tempest and attempting to save Jonah. And then we see something even more amazing than that in verse 14. These pagan sailors begin to pray not to any god, but to the God who owns the land and the sea. They pray to Yahweh, to our God. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. And they do what Jonah suggested, and they toss him in the sea, and immediately the sea stops raging. And in verse 16, we see the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Right? There's a lot happening in this, in this section. It's easy enough to read over this, this first chapter of, of Jonah if we're reading through the Bible or just reading through the whole book. I've done it myself. But let's stop and think through a couple of these things that's happening. First, the mighty tempest, right? The Lord sent this tempest. The Lord sends all storms. The storm was sent because of Jonah's sin, right? Sin, as it often does, has widespread consequences. Jonah's sin had unintended consequences. I imagine he didn't intend it. These sailors almost lost their lives, almost lost their boat, almost lost everything. And I'm not saying that all storms are caused by sin. I want to be clear on that. Not all storms are caused by sin. Ian didn't hit Fort Lauderdale because someone was particularly sinful in Fort, Lauder- or Fort Myers, Right? What Scripture shows us, though, is that sin causes storms in our lives. So sin causes storms, but not all storms are caused by sin. Does that make sense? There was an intended consequence of the storm, at least on God's side, and we see it play out with the pagan sailors. These men, through Jonah's sin, see the judgment of a true God, and they come to fear the God who rules the land and the sea, and in the end... They made sacrifices and vows. Just like the storm, the casting of lots, and everything else we've seen, God is in complete control here. These former pagans become become sons. They did so not because of Jonah, but in spite of him. Verse 10 told us they knew he was running away from God. What a witness that was of Jonah. He's running away from his God. God is using Jonah's sin God is using his failings. God is using the storm and all that is happening, and he saves these group of pagan sailors, right? It's a beautiful thing there. God will accomplish what he desires with or without our cooperation. We read it earlier. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We see it here first. 
There's also a warning here. God is using Jonah, right, to save these people. God uses all sorts of things to accomplish his will. The warning is this. Just because God is using you doesn't mean you're in a proper relationship with God. We're going to continue. Verse 17 is what most of the world knows about the book of Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Right? It's a challenging verse. It's outside of our experience. I don't know anybody who's been eaten by a fish for three days other than Jonah. Right? But we're talking about literary styles earlier, and this is one of the reasons. This verse is one of the reasons. Do we read this as a parable, or do we read this as an historic account? If we read it as a parable, it doesn't make the book of Jonah worthless, but it makes the book of Jonah different, right? It makes it not what it was intended to be. Now, everything here points to an actual fish. Like I said, Jesus references this very event in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 38. He says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? If this account is a parable, it would be weird for Jesus to reference this to his actual event of his resurrection. Secondly, I would argue, if we believe Genesis 1-1 as an historical actual account, of what happened, believing a fish ate a man is easy, right? If God could speak the world into existence, he can certainly get a fish to eat a man. And finally, another quote from Sinclair Ferguson, he says, we have to be careful that we don't get so wrapped up in the great fish that we miss the great God, right? God is doing something here. It is an actual fish, and he's using it. So we turn to chapter 2, we see Jonah in his sin, plummeting down the Mediterranean Sea. I'm guessing assured of his death at this point. And the Lord exercises salvation once again. We see this prayer, and if, if we removed verse 1 from this prayer and started at verse 2, this prayer would certainly fit anywhere in the Psalms. It's basically a, a Psalms of lament, right? We, it sounds like something David would write. We see Jonah here in prayer in the presence now of the Lord. The very God he was seeking to distance himself from earlier, he's now returned to, and we see this beautiful prayer of a broken and contrite sinner. It would appear that God's wrath on Jonah was actually grace. If it takes wrath to turn a wayward sheep back to the flock, then that is a merciful wrath. We can see this prayer taking shape, the imagery of Jonah sinking deeper and deeper downwards in distress. He's in the belly of Sheol. He's He's in the deep. He's in the heart of the seas. He's surrounded by the flood. The waves are over his head. We see the sense of impending doom as he sinks in the first three verses there. And then Jonah in verse four recognizes something that's even more important than sinking in the sea. He says, I was driven away from your sight. To be out of the presence of the Lord was all that he wanted in chapter one, right? He wanted to be away from him. And what he's longing for now is just to look at the presence, the holy temple, and see God. It's merciful wrath, 
right? It took Jonah to be drowned, plummeting into the darkness to realize that he was fleeing from the only thing that could save him. In verse 7, he says it clearly for us. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. God was exercising grace by reminding Jonah that his greatest need was God. His place to be was in God's presence. God, God was reminding Jonah that Jonah needed mercy. Jonah needed rescue. And in doing so, he was preparing him and equipping him to accomplish the task he had set out for him in the beginning. But drowning rarely feels like grace, right? And storms are hard to recognize as acts of mercy. But we have to be careful that when we feel like we're drowning and we feel like the storm is on us, that we don't overlook what the Lord is doing in and through them. Remember Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Jonah was literally called for a purpose, and the Lord is working out the sin, the storm, the drowning, all for Jonah's good. Verse 9 ends, again, in that, that beautiful truth, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, Jonah may have meant his salvation here, or he may have meant everyone's salvation belongs to the Lord. We know that everyone's salvation belongs to the Lord. The salvation of the sailors, of Jonah, of Nineveh, right? And again, God saved those sailors not because of Jonah, right? And God saved Jonah in the sea, not because of anything Jonah did. We'll see God saved Nineveh in spite of Jonah's lackluster efforts and ill will. If you're like me, though, and you read chapter 2, and you, and you know the whole story of Jonah, right? We've mentioned it a couple of times already. It makes you wonder a little bit, right? I guess that's a nice way to put it. This prayer, this penitent, heartfelt prayer, Jonah recognizes his sin, his folly, and cries out to be in the presence of the Lord. He ends in this acknowledgement, salvation belongs to the Lord, and we'll see, and if you know the story, we'll see that Jonah quickly reverts back to his old ways, right, by the end of the story. So was this prayer legitimate then, right? How can Jonah experience this revelation? How can Jonah experience what God has done and, and go back to his old ways so quickly? In, in these short four chapters, we'll see it. This is an easy trap to fall into, Right? It's all over the Old Testament. How can Israel, how can David, how can Noah, right? All these examples of sin and sin and sin. After God doing a mighty work, how do the Israelites complain after walking through the Red Sea that they don't have enough meat, right? How do these kings of Israel continue to sin and sin and sin and sin, right? I remember my wife Tracy had finished the Old Testament years ago, and she said, these Israelites are stupid. Like, what are they doing? They just keep doing the same thing again and again and again, right? But isn't this our story, right? Look at the works that the Lord has done in us and around us. 
And look at the amount of time that passed before we too struggled, before we too stumbled in sin. The Lord was using this moment. It was legitimate. He was using everything around Jonah to lead him and shape him. Not because Jonah was obedient, not because Jonah didn't sin. The Lord had a purpose for Jonah and a purpose for this story. That's why we're talking about it 2,700 years later. We're still telling it. And the chapter ends, a simple statement of an amazing miracle. The Lord spoke the fish, spoke to the fish, and the fish was more obedient than Jonah, and it vomited Jonah out of the land. That sounds like a fun time. Chapter 3 starts with more grace. The word of the Lord came a second time. Right? Surely the Lord should just be done with Jonah at this point. Jonah's proven himself unwilling and incompetent. But the word of the Lord came a second time. Jonah does his best to thwart God's plans, does his best to hide from God, but he comes back again. What kind of God is this? Who does this? I thank my brother Mark for preaching that sentiment just in the prayer of confession. Psalms 86, 15 tells us, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. Right? This is our God. This is Yahweh. This is a God who delights and steadfast love. Jonah's the beneficiary of that right now. Jonah obeys this time and walks one day into the three-day walk across the city and makes this simple proclamation. Verse 4, he says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? Like I said, that's it. That's the proclamation. That's the prophetic message. Read other prophets. It's just full of, of prophetic messages. And we have this one stunningly terse, verse, but the next verse is even more shocking. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah said eight words from God, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't believe Jonah. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. The word he was speaking was the word of God, right? And they recognized it immediately. And it was enough. And immediately, there was a revival in Nineveh, right? Something in Jonah had to die in that fish so that he could walk into Nineveh and say those eight words and speak powerfully. The word of the Lord came powerfully from Jonah, even if it was eight words. John Owen had this to say. He said, the word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts, right? And we see an effective word come from Jonah. Jonah's suffering was not in vain. This absolutely wicked city of death and destruction, outright evil, experienced absolute revival. It happened out of the death of self of Jonah, however momentary, it's the theme that runs the entirety of Scripture, dying to self and dying for others. There was genuine repentance taking place in Nineveh, from the castle to the cattle, from the king to the cows. We see it all the way through. 
the Ninevites heard a word of a warning of danger that they were in, and they believed it, right? They believed God. Do we believe? Do we believe the word when it speaks of the danger to eternal souls, right? Do I preach as though there are people in this congregation today who might be in 40 days overthrown? It's a good question to think about. Flipping back to Matthew 12, continuing where we left off in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right? There's an explicit warning for us here. These wicked Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. Today we have something so much better than Jonah. Right? Today we have Christ and his word and the Holy Spirit. But the danger to an unbeliever is every bit as dangerous as it was for Nineveh. The only question is, do we believe and will we be as bold as Jonah was and declare it? The chapter closes with God relenting. God relenting of the destruction that was promised, right? And the destruction that was promised was real. The same word used, he used earlier in speaking about Sodom and Gomorrah, right, is what he used when he's speaking about Nineveh. It was an annihilation of the city, of the inhabitants. Everybody would be dead unless, right, unless there was a genuine repentance, So the question comes up, did God change his mind? And this question comes up a lot when we talk about prophetic, right? It's come up at RCG quite a bit of times. I think that there's a note I ran across from the ESV study Bible that helps. It says, from a temporal perspective, from our perspective, God responds to human action, right? From an eternal perspective, God chooses the means, which was human repenting, as well as the end, which is divine relenting. God did not change his mind. It was his plan that this would happen all along. And he would use the means of Nineveh's actual repentance to bring about his relenting. It's still a lot to wrap your head around because it's so different than what we think. But salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord has now seen fit to save the sailors, to save Jonah, to save Nineveh. Right? Amen. It's beautiful. And celebration broke out, and Jonah was filled with joy as 120,000 people who were destined to die in eternal torment were spared. Right? No, that's, that's not what happened. Uh, we're going to turn in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. I'd like to say that's what happened, but it's the word of the Lord and not my word. Can you imagine as a Christian, can you imagine as a speaker of the word, you walk into New York and you say, or L.A., or any major city, and you say, yet 40 days and the city will be overthrown, and almost immediately the entire city repents, from the mayor down to the lowest person on the street, right? Everyone generally repents of their sin and is spared from the destruction that was promised them. Man, I would, I would be pumped up, right? I think any of us would be excited for that. Even on a small scale, we'd be excited for that. If we could walk into Rockledge and that would happen, like that would be exciting, but that's not what we see, right? As we go in chapter 4, we see Jonah was, was not excited. Maybe he was worried about a reputation he would gain in Israel as a traitor prophet, perhaps, right? The one who went to these, 
awful Assyrians and, 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 and save them. We're not sure, but we know Jonah would rather die than to see the Lord offer these people the exact same grace that he'd been freely given to himself not days earlier. We see a prayer again in chapter 4, and this prayer is a much different prayer than what we saw in chapter 2. This was an angry prayer. We see Jonah blaming God for his running away, and we see Jonah take the very attributes of God that saved him and use them as an accusation against God's character. Jonah goes on now and begs God to take his life, the very life that God spared by rescuing him out of the deep. Out of the deep. And the Lord, in his long-suffering patience, asks Jonah a question, and he says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah walks off in a huff. I can picture it, like a two-year-old, right? He walks off in a huff, and he finds a hill, and he sits down, and he just waits to see what happens. Maybe Nineveh will still get destroyed. I think that's his hope, right? Maybe they'll mess up and God will destroy them. Maybe God will change his mind again. He's sitting there and it's hot. It's uncomfortably hot. And the Lord extends grace and he appoints a vine to grow over Jonah and it provides him shade. Verse six tells us that Jonah was exceedingly glad, right? It's the same word. Just like he was exceedingly displeased earlier, now he's exceedingly glad. Glad at the grace shown to him. And Jonah falls asleep, and probably was in a good mood that night, and slept well. And he wakes up the next morning, and God appoints two more things to happen, and they're meant to make Jonah uncomfortable. First, he appoints a worm to eat the plant. He appoints a scorching east wind to blow on him and the sun to beat down on him. And Jonah reacts again like a petulant child. And he asks God once more that he may die, right? If I can't have my plant, then you might as well kill me. He says in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time Jonah answers and he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die, right? A bold proclamation from an angry man. We see the book of Jonah closes with a question from the Lord to Jonah. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came from into being in, the, in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people, persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Right? That's a pretty straightforward question. Jonah was... Uh, had displayed much displeasure at a plant, a plant that was given to him in a night. He was angry when it was taken away, and he cursed the life that God had rescued. The Lord simply points out what should be obvious. You're more upset about a plant than you were about 120,000 people, right? And the book just ends there, right? It ends in an odd place. Not how you write a movie. Where's, where's the resolution? What, what, happens to the, what happens to Jonah, right? We don't know, right? God leaves us with these questions, and they're left for us to answer even today. So what are we to do with this book, right? What are we to do with it? Like I said, there's, there's many themes 
And there's a lot of depth and many questions that it raises. There are warnings and comforts and hope and grace and sin and disobedience and all these things. And as far out there as this book may seem at times, and as many extremes as we see in it, there's something in this book that looks a lot like my Christian walk, right? I think I'm not alone. I mean, I've never been a prophet, and I've never been eaten by a fish. I'll start with that. But I do know what it's like to try to hide from God, right? I think a lot of us do. I do know what it's like to feel like I'm drowning and to call out and God answers, right? I even know what it's like to sin and stumble, even after God has shown me grace, right? It's too easy to write Jonah off as a bad prophet. He's just an example of everything we're not supposed to be. He's a bad guy. Move on. Who's the next minor prophet, right? But if we do that, we lose an opportunity to learn from Jonah. There's a few key takeaways I want us to leave with today. First, if you're a child of God and you're in a storm, perhaps you've gone over the edge of the boat already. You can feel the deep surrounding you. There's two truths to remember, that God is in complete control and that he's good and he's working all things for your good. If you are suffering what feels like discipline, then thanks be to the Lord. It's proof that he loves you. Proverbs 13, 11 says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. We serve a God of unrelenting love. He loved Jonah so much that in order to refine him, he almost killed him, right? And as much as it may scare us, he loves us that way too. I want us to leave with some good news, right, as well. Jonah was broken, man. Jonah was full of anger and sin. He was a broken man in the dark for three days and came out on the shore and he was still unwilling to sacrifice for the comfort of others, right? He wouldn't sacrifice his comfort, let alone his life, right? Like I said, we can't write him off. We share too much with him. Jonah wasn't the hope of Nineveh. The Lord was, right? We cannot be our hope either, There is a better Jonah found in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ voluntarily took on more than discomfort for us. He laid down his life in our stead. Every time we see Jonah act like a selfish child, Christ was emptying himself. Where Jonah fled the presence, Christ sought out the presence every time it was possible. Where Jonah failed and stumbled in sin, Christ lived perfectly to grant us a righteousness that was not our own. Jonah stumbles out of, after three days in the dark and remains broken. Christ emerges, emerges from three days in the tomb, and he's victorious, right? He has victory over death and sin. It's been attained. We can never be our own hope. But if we're honest, isn't that a lie that we fight against over and over and over again? We gain clarity and re, things are good, and then we stumble, right? But we need to remember the God we serve from what Mark showed us in uh, the prayer of confession and from Micah again. Who was a God like you 
pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in steadfast love. He delights in his love for us. There is joy in that, my brothers and sisters, right? I also want to leave you with a warning. If you're not in Christ, if you're running from him, if you're living in unrepentant sin like the Ninevites, there's judgment, right? There is a judgment coming. We don't have a prophet proclaiming in 40 days you'll be overthrown, but there is a judgment promise for those who would not submit to his lordship and repent of their sins. I urge you, as Paul did the Corinthians, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Our God is long-suffering and patient, but it would be folly to rely on a later day to repent. Tomorrow is not promised. Scripture says our life is like a vapor. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he has offered it as a free gift of grace. Christ has willingly paid the price of our sin in our stead and granted us his perfect righteousness. If you're here today and that's you, I I urge you, find someone here. Find someone you came with. Find someone else uh, just to talk to. If you want to know more, grab someone by the arm after service and say, I just ask, and anybody here would be willing to talk to you about that. And this church would rejoice at the redemption of a single soul, let alone 120,000. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your steadfast love that you delight in. Lord, I pray that you hold us close. Lord, we're prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, but your love is steadfast and it's sure. Your grip on us is eternal. God, I pray that you would be with us today as we continue in, in worship. Lord, I pray that, Lord, your word again would be effective. Lord, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.